Welcome to the Found Cause, where we found our cause and serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm Michael, the man behind the machine, and to my virtual front is... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. And his virtual side, it's... Theodore, under the PC, under the person of Christ. Now, today's episode is a Theodore episode. Unfortunately, Theodore's uh, whole mic internet setup is making his visual delayed, but his audio looks fine and his video looks fine, so we're going to keep trucking. Uh, this is a Theodore topic, just like we talked about last week, where um, Theodore writes very, very large titles in our group Google document where we schedule all of our episodes, and this is one that we handed over to him. In fact, we delayed before when he was not there so that he could take this one. He called it Deconstructing the Christian creeds. I would say it's more of a survey of all the different Christian creeds, but without further ado, I'm going to head it over to Theodore to justify what we're talking about today and why it's important. All right. So we're talking about <clears throat> creeds and confessions, which the church has had basically since it's begun. Um, confessions are a more detailed um, kind of thing that uh, a lot of churches come up with. Um, and they're about what um, a church believes or what the universal Christian church believes. Um, and then creeds are more basic and fundamental and designate in whom we believe. Um, and then, so we can go to Deuteronomy 6 and 2 Peter. Um, these Bible verses basically mention um, why we have creeds, why we um need to know what we believe in whom we believe and why it's good to be reminded yeah and and before we even go there i always like to set up the opposition um there are many many churches uh, less so now because weird traditions in the u.s fall out of favor pretty quick um but there are many churches including uh, i went to one bethlehem baptist church uh, for a while that had this in their motto because it was a really old motto they had from like the early 1900s um which was we we hold to no creeds but christ and so they they made it a point that they did not hold the creeds. They did not hold the confessions um, because creeds and confessions have been such a natural and historical part of the church, especially in Western Europe, um, that it was seen as Catholic or European or Lutheran or whatever. And um, some fundamental Baptist churches in the United States decided that they would have no creed but Christ. And therefore, they wouldn't hold to any of these man-made doctrines, but only the true doctrine. Um, these uh, creeds and confessions we hold on the found cause and Theodore especially because he's doing this episode um, they're very important and integral to have and so while we don't ultimately hold to creeds um, for the sake of the creed they do point to truths of the scripture of, of God and therefore as far as a creed is true we hold to it and so they're important to outline exactly what you believe and when let's quote why Sebastian you got the Shema Israel Oh yes, one of my favorite things. Probably say it more often than I should. But again, but creeds are ideally based on the Bible, hence why they're Christian creeds. So they are supposed to be a summary to make it easy for believers of that particular denomination to understand what they believe and ideally why or the reasoning and biblical justification behind it. So we will, as you guys have mentioned, we will start with the Bible examples of creeds in the bible and then eventually we'll get to how human made and human inspired creeds compared to god inspired creeds so to say from deuteronomy 6 hear o israel the lord our god the lord is one you shall love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might 
and th these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign in your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Amen. Amen. Yeah, that is an intro to the law that God gave to Moses in the Old Testament. And you will eventually notice, too, that Jesus summarizes the law in you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength, referring to the Shema that we just read, either quoting from the Septuagint or you can also quote from the Hebrew Bible. So you would see that. And it is a summary. It is an introduction, introductory um, paragraph, I would say. And there is also a call to action. Not only does it speak on truth about God, that is just one God, Yahweh Lohino Yahweh Echad in Hebrew, and also what you are expected to do as a follower of such a God, loving the Lord your God, and then teaching others the laws of God, which will be explained later on. So I would say 10 out of 10 for this creed so far of all the creeds that we will have in yeah. objectivity and quality. And, and fundamentally, it shows that a summarization of God's command is good, and that reminding it, even in its summary form, to your children and remembering on it is a good thing to do. So while you might debate on whether or not creeds are as good as Deuteronomy 6.4, because they're not, they're not God-given like that, um, we design them, and the church has designed them to be based on the same word of God that Deuteronomy 6.4 is. And so um, a good creed is one that summarizes just like 6.4. So we show that as an example of a God-given creed and why it's important. And then I'll take one. This is, again, Theodore outlined this episode, so these are verses that came to his mind. But Second Peter 1 has a section in it that says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. Um, therefore, it's a, a call from Peter to the church to remember the things that you were taught. And, and Jude verse 2 has the same things. I remember the truth that was once for all uh, laid down as a foundation. So these things are important to do, um, constantly reminding of the basics. So when churches do give the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, which we're about to talk about, before service or after service, some would claim that it's rote, um, it doesn't mean anything, and you should get rid of it. Um, I don't know that you need to have it. However, I would not be pro getting rid of it if it's already there, because it's good to remind yourself of truths, even if they are old and, and normal. Right. <clears throat> and do we want to do First Corinthians 15 and First Timothy 3 now? Uh, early partial creed-like things uh, in the New Testament? Sure. I do have First Corinthians 15. And so this is from Paul. And we estimate that this will be a very early creed right after a few years after the death of Christ that was passed that was being passed along amongst the early church. So for First Corinthians fifteen, for what I received, I passed on to you as a first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. 
After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. So kind of an odd creed, I mean, considering the creeds we're about to read, the traditional church creeds, because this one involves specific people, um, but definitely a summarized confession of the account of Jesus' death and resurrection. So that would be creed-like. Yes, and, then... and I do want to say, though, because it might be important, too, that he does preface this. This is, again, the intention is to summarize. He starts, I wanted to just read the creed first, but then he started earlier in the chapter. Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you're saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. So again, back to the theme of summary, reminder. These are the essentials. These are the key points. Take them to heart. Teach them to people. Same, same thing. Mm -hmm. And then First Timothy 3, you got that, Theodore, is another example of an early creed. You want me to get that one? First mm -hmm. Timothy 3.16. By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. He who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's speaking of Jesus. Yeah. Now, again, these early creeds are not particularly uh, big or that theologically thumping, um, in my humble opinion. Um, that's because they're early creeds, and they um, that the creeds that we will discuss, the famous creeds, Apostles' Creed, uh, the Nicene Creed, and even the older confessions that they get much more robust, are to combat heresy. And so in the very early church, the, the type of heresy they were fighting was very early heresy that was really basic that said that Jesus didn't rise from the dead or whatever else. So basic creed to fight basic heresy. And as heresies get more complicated, you get more complicated creeds. So without further ado, that brings us to probably the most famous creed, if you know your creeds, and that is the Nicene Creed. Uh, the Nicene Creed was written in 381 AD, around the time of the uh, Nicene Council, that Constantine makes uh, Christianity the, the tolerated religion in the, in the Roman Empire. Um, they come together to fight a particular heresy, again, a more complicated heresy of Arminianism. You can, I'm sure if you know your Christian history, you know about this, um, uh, Arianism, sorry, not Arminianism. Gosh, totally different thing. Arianism, <laughs> <laughs> that's a different creed. Uh, Arianism, uh, very famous heresy says that Christ, um, wasn't God and now had become God. And it was a man in any case, um, you can go to our other episodes to, to get on that. But the Nicene Creed itself is useful even outside of just combating Arianism. Um, Theodore, why don't you do the honors of reading us the Nicene Creed? Yeah, so the Nicene Creed and Apostles' Creed, I guess, deal more with like the nature of the Trinity and then also the nature of Jesus and his dual nature. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so the Nicene Creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible and in one lord jesus christ the only begotten son of god begotten of the father before all worlds god of god light of light very god of very god begotten not made being of one substance with the father by whom all things were made <clears throat> who for us men 
For us, our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits on the right hand of the Father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the quick and the dead, or the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And I believe in the Holy Ghost, or the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, in parentheses, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church, I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And then obviously just you got to mention every time that when it says, and I believe in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church, it's not talking about the holy Roman Catholic church. It's talking about a holy universal Christian apostolic church. Yes, which is what Catholic means by definition. But of course, today, because the Roman Catholic Church um, presumes to be the only church, they have stolen the name Catholic, um, when in reality, we're all Catholic Christians, if you are a true believer. It's a marketing tool. And even the Eastern Orthodox, they say they're the Orthodox Catholic Church. So there you go. It's, again, it's marketing. And, and considering Orthodox already means like um, believing true. So. It's it's all marketing, yes. So that was the Nicene Creed, and you can see, like Theodore said, very Trinitarian and combating a Varianism, very particular about its language. Um, that's why it gives all languages like uh, the Holy Ghost, the Lord and Giver of Life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. It's very careful about its language because it's trying to combat particular heresies. And then later, in 780, um, a, a version of the Nicene Creed is summarized. Uh, it has a little bit, it's, it's shorter, and it's also more pointed on exactly what the gospel is. It's less specific. Um, this one, I know, I've been at several churches that quote the Apostles' Creed. Usually the Nicene Creed is just too long. Um, but Theodore, maybe you want to take that one too. Sure. <clears throat> oh, sorry. I don't have COVID. Um... The Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. So this one, I mean, <clears throat> honestly, for when it was written, again, 700 AD, it combats a lot of the current heresies today, as far as those who say that the body won't be resurrected, or that you're not really forgiven of sins, like the Catholic Church, uh, life everlasting, and that would, I think that can, fights with Jehovah's Witnesses and others like that. Um, the communion of saints and the Holy Spirit, um, also combating those like uh, one is Pentecostals and others, and uh, of course it combats uh, mystical, weird interpretations of Jesus dying but not actually dying. When it says in the third day he rose again, he was dead and buried, descended in hell. Classic, classic. Um, one of the controversial things about this creed is that it says he descended into hell. Usually in English um, languages, 
and we would hold that he doesn't descend into hell proper, which we today would call um, like Henna or, or the you know the the hell. Um, instead, this hell is just Hades. It's it's Sheol. It's the classic Sheol. Read my mind, Michael. I was thinking I propose an amendment for this. We should rename that the grave or yeah. Hades or Sheol. But in fact, for modern English, yeah, and some modern translations do decide to, to change it from hell. But this creed is responsible for I think a decent amount of Christians believing that he descended into hell proper, which I just don't think is quite right. I mean, I understand where they're going for, but um, not quite right. And before we go on further in time i thought it might be useful i thought of the didache mm -hmm. as, oh yeah which is the whole thing it's pretty short it's a very early i would say a christian creed as well on all kinds of topics so i will always encourage anyone to read it it is probably from the year 70 to 90 ad that's when it was written more or less so i'd say it's good to get into the what how the early church summarized their beliefs, even before Nicaea, before any formal council, and right after the time of the apostles. And it starts out with, there are two ways, one of life and one of death. And there's a big difference between the two. So it's, it's, as it gets through and explains what is sin, what is eternal life. What I will read though is on Thanksgiving, which is the meal that Christians would have on what we call the Eucharist, not what modern churches think the Eucharist is, but this would have been an actual proper meal in which people eat a lot of food together after the, after the service or uh, teaching, if you can call it that. After you've had enough, give thanks like this. We give you thanks, Holy Father, for your holy name, which you have caused to dwell in our hearts and for the knowledge and faith and immortality which you have made known to us through your servant Jesus. The glory is yours forever. You, all governing master, created all things for the sake of your name and gave food and drink to people to enjoy that they might give you thanks. But to us, you have graciously given spiritual food and drink and eternal life through your servant. Above all, we give thanks because you are powerful. The glory is yours forever. Remember your church, Lord, to deliver it from all evil and to make it perfect in your love. And gather the church that has been sanctified from the four winds into your kingdom, which you have prepared for it, because the power and the glory are yours forever. May grace come and may this world pass away. Hosanna to the God of David. If anyone is holy, let him come. If anyone is not, let him change the way he understands the world and act accordingly. Maranatha. Amen. That's a long one. Man, Nicene Creed long. Yeah, but this would have, people would have been saying, um, ideally, after the <laughs> church service. So I say it hits on all the main points the immortality of Jesus, the preordaining of God. Did someone say Calvinism or is it just me? And also how we should be thankful to to God at all times. So it was pretty humble, but I think it gets many of the points across. Yeah. And I think that... This, from the early... Right. And the summary of that is that from these early church church 
creeds to even 700 AD, which isn't a super early church, but of course it's early to us. Um, these are creeds that if your church does not hold to them, even if they don't have them on their website or whatever else, like I understand there's priorities and what creeds you choose. Um, but if your church does not agree with the sentiments of these, um, we would say that's probably the biggest red flag you can get for your church being um, not Christian and very troublesome. Um, so get out of there. Like it's probably universal Unitarian or something wrong um, with it uh, fundamentally. And so there are, and you know, that might sound uncontroversial, but I know personally know there are some believing Christians who want to shake hands with um, Unitarians. Uh, and I mean like, like Pentecostal Unitarians, a big black church movement usually is these people who believe in Jesus only, where they, they believe that Jesus is the father and the father is the son and the son is the Holy Spirit. Um, these are these are heretics there. They don't confess to the creed. They worship a totally different God. So let's not shake hands with them. Um, these creeds are important because it helps us draw those dividing lines where you might not do it naturally because you like the, the smiles, of the church service, and they look like Christians, and they speak like Christians, but they aren't Christians. They don't hold a creed like that. And that creed is derived specifically from the Bible. So don't think we're just making up man-made things. It's, it's just a summary of what the Bible has to say. So those people who deny the Trinity are denying the scriptures. Speaking of, and this is, again, Theodore's setup, we have a great, uh, we want to move into, this is the non-controversial creeds for the most part. Um, we're going into the controversial creeds, um, some of the more specific, so much longer. And when you get longer, um, we start to call them confessions because they're huge and they're, they basically encompass the whole beliefs of the church and all the rules that a church might have and then combating every single heresy that could possibly pop up and then how you devote your faith and life. So basically a bigger summary of the whole of the Bible instead of just the core theology of the Bible. But before we get to that, we wanted to give some controversial uh, confessions from the other sides, so Roman Catholics, and uh, we could not find any worse confession than from the uh, Unitarian <laughs> Universalists. Yeah, so maybe Theodore, you want to read their confession of faith, which is um, uh, yeah, kind of short from their website. Straight from uua.org, Unitarian Universalist Association, written by Mary Eads. It says. Here we are, and again, this is not any of us uh, professing this. This just <laughs> don't take this out of What their confession is, just for your own edification, to stay away from their church so that you can live well spiritually. Uh, she says, "Here we are gathered, humanist and Christian, non-theist, Buddhist and Jew, pagan and seeker." a Unitarian Universalist congregation. Let us confess what we know to be true. We are quick to proclaim our faith, but slow to live the teachings of that faith as it has been handed down to us across every generation, from prophets, preachers, and sages, scientists, historians, <clears throat> poets, great thinkers of every age, from ordinary women and men, would have us understand what it is to be and what it is to love the neighbor. We are quick to judge one another, but slow to act for justice, equity, and compassion in human relations. That's actually what it says. Um, we are quick to ignore or smooth over broken places among us, too fearful to work for peace and healing. We are quick to share our knowledge, but slow to temper that knowledge with the love and wisdom that leads us always closer to the truth. 
In small and large ways, we are overwhelmed by all we cannot do. For all the times we fail to affirm and promote the inherent worth and dignity of every person, we do not affirm and promote the goal of a world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all. When we live as though interdependence were a personal choice and not a fact of our existence, we ask forgiveness of one another, and we vow to begin again in this and every moment. I've not read a confession so heretical. Well, I mean, there are more heretical confessions, um, I think. But I've not read just... yet. <laughs> <laughs> this is not so pointedly heretical. It's just like passively by its, by its statements, completely and utterly non-Christian. Um, not that they claim really to be Christian, uh, but they, of course, they say that non-theists and Christians and humanists and Buddhists and Jews and pagans and seekers are all part of the congregation, which is by definition not true because all of those except for the Christian deny the Lord. Uh, and then we have uh, faith being handed down by sages and scientists and poets. Um, I mean, depends on how you define those things. Um, but I assume they mean like Carl Sagan, who's not a man of faith, not true faith at least. And then, uh, and then the rest of it's just a, a literal confession. So not a confession of like what they believe, but instead a confession of sin. They, they say they sin because they're quick to judge and they're, they had, they didn't believe the teachings of the Buddhas and, uh, that they'll, they vow to do better. So, um, no salvation. Then they finish it off with, we ask for, we ask forgiveness of one another. Right. Not of God. They don't ask for, get forgiveness of the one true almighty God. I mean, enough said. Oh. They, they are the universal, uh, universal Unitarians, so, or Unitarian Universalists, how do they say that? So not surprising their, their confession is bad, but they have a confession note. And so I think for those fundy churches that don't have a confession, know that even the biggest squishes have a really squishy, awful confession. You really should have a confession to so that uh, your church does not get invaded by wolves who twist scripture. And because you don't have a solid confession on your works and your hands, um, they will add in their own perversities. So you really do need a confession. Even the universal Unitarians have one. Yes, I give them one out of 10. One, because they have a confession. <laughs> All right. <laughs> now, on the flip side, uh, not Unitarian Universalists, but the Vatican, so the, the Catholic Church, they have um, the same confessions that Christian churches have because they come from the same history. They have the Apostles' Creed. They have the Nicene Creed. But um, because they really and truly have diverged from Christianity in the Middle Ages and the Council of Trent and afterwards, um, they have updated their creeds to be specifically Roman Catholic. So at the end of, I think, is this the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed? It looks like the Nicene Creed. It's long. So at the end of the Nicene Creed, their their profession of faith, so they call it the Professio Fide, um, they add two points. And maybe, Theodore, you want to keep rolling in and add these two. Yeah. Um, okay, yeah. So basically, they have the Nicene Creed, and then they have few lines extra that they say those are um i also firmly accept and hold each and everything definitively proposed by the church regarding teaching on faith and morals that is the roman catholic church moreover i adhere with religious submission of will and intellect to the teachings which either the roman pontiff or the college of bishops enunciate when they exercise their authentic magisterium 
even if they do not intend to proclaim these teachings by a definitive act. And that's it, just two little lines, um, but they are clearly around the supremacy of the Catholic Church and trying to combat um, those who would question the authority of the Pope, the Roman Pontiff, as they call him. Um, what's odd here, and we were even noting as we were going through this, and maybe Sebastian, you want to speak on it, what's odd is that um, it doesn't really fit with the way I hear Roman Catholic apologists defend the Pope today. Right, because if you notice, it's claiming that even if the Pope doesn't, or any bishop, I'm supposed to, isn't necessarily sitting on their cathedra, their chair, whatever they teach should be taken as church doctrine, tradition, and teaching. Which normally, normally, if you hear many Catholic apologists say, the Pope can make any side comments that he wants, even if it contradicts tradition of the Catholic Church. It's only when he's sitting on his little throne and saying, I am about to say and proclaim a teaching. That's when it really counts. But actually, the way I read this from what Theodore just quoted is that anytime he holds the office, meaning for his whole life, right? Because he's elected for life, whatever he teaches, even if he doesn't mean to do it officially, that is Catholic teaching, including all the side comments. Yeah. Because he doesn't stop being Pope. Like, come on. Like when he when he steps out of the church and goes to his room, have some dinner, lunch, whatever, he's still the Pope. Right. And and moreover, I mean we know the problem comes with um some example popes, including our current Pope today, Frankie. Um he is not a Christian. <laughs> not only is he not uh Protestant, i.e. like like a confessing, believing Christian, he's Roman Catholic, but he's not even Roman Catholic. He's some universal Unitarian, speaking of, that believes that other faiths are saved and, and believes that people don't go to hell and, and the rest, like, pretty pretty notoriously. And he says as much. It's not just, like, in his private life where he's speaking to reporters or whatever else. It's when he's in public, people are speaking to him as the Pope. He's answering questions as the Pope, and he tells the little kid that his atheist dad isn't going to hell. That is um, not ex cathedra, so Catholic apologists say that he didn't speak from his official authority, but according to their own confession, um, this is not true. That, that when he says something like that, it is true, and you would not be professing the Catholic faith if you didn't believe that. So I guess Roman Catholic apologists aren't professing the Catholic faith. Uh, nevertheless, we share this not just to point out that weird uh, contradiction in their current methods, um, but also to show that they add to the Apostles' Creed, which I... We're all allowed to. It's all a man-made creed. However, they add with um, purely Roman Catholic garbage. So there you go. Everybody's using confessions, including the Roman Catholic Church. Now, to go across the aisle um, from us, but still in the Protestant realm, the United Methodist Church, uh, sad and liberal, but um, founded on some real Christian foundations, even if we disagree with those foundations, they have a creed, a big confession of faith. Uh, it's big. This is when we start to get into big confessions of faith, like the Council of Trent and its huge confession of faith, or Vatican II and its gigantic confession of faith. Um, the United Methodists have a large confession of faith that, again, goes through basically everything you would want to know about faith and life. Um, they add um, some Arminian points, and if you know your theology, Arminianism that says that uh, you can leave the faith and that 
uh, it's up to you whether or not you get saved, not God. Um, we don't agree with that. We believe that it's compatible with being a true Christian, um, but we don't agree with that. We don't believe what the Bible says. And so the only iffy part of their confession, believe it or not, considering they're so notoriously bad, is uh, a portion that says that we believe, although we have experienced regeneration, it is possible to depart from grace and fall into sin. And we may, even then, by the grace of God, may be renewed into righteousness. So, I mean, that's that's basic Arminian theology. Um, I'm frankly impressed, really theater of the research here. He's frankly impressed that they weren't super squishy, um, probably because they've put that confession of faith somewhere deep and dark that nobody actually looks at. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> if they had a front and center, they'd be confessing proper Christianity. <clears throat> Anything else to say, men, before we get into like the big famous confessions? That's the importance of creeds. I wish the United Methodist Church would bring that out uh, have a class on it, mm-hmm. um, know what they are supposed to believe by their founders. Um, <clears throat> but yeah. Yeah. I mean, amen to that. And maybe the United Methodist Church will recover when the Africans take over, like from Africa and uh, wrench control from the American church. We'll see. So uh, some notable mentions that we didn't talk about and other Christian creeds we didn't talk about are the... Um, creed of nicaea not to be confused with the nicaean creed um they're, they're pretty similar there's just a couple of things that uh, got added in the nicaean creed official there's chalcedonian creed and from 451 a.d that attacks nestorianism there's the athanasian creed which is from athanasius uh, of egypt the famous christian uh, who combated arianism and then later they, they take a creed from him and his church taught uh there are many other creeds that we are skipping over because they're variations and we're not going to talk on them. We want to touch on confessions because uh, creeds are all well and good. I, I do think that a lot of churches can say a creed but not really mean it or it's not super applicable because it only speaks to the bare basics of the faith because that's the essence of what it should be. It's a summary statement. Um, however, I believe every church should really graduate from having just a creed of what they believe to a full confession of faith. Um, so you go to Christian websites, and we've reviewed church websites in this podcast, I think twice now. Um, but we go to a Christian website, or a church website specifically, and we see if the faith things, the articles of faith that that church has are robust, um, or if they're wrong, or if they're just weak. And more often than not, for even good churches, they have a really weak um, statement, and it's usually just in the shape of a creed. Um, it's either from their like denominations website, which is really embarrassing. I hate that, or um, it's their own thing. But they really just copied the Nicene Creed or something else that says they believe that Scripture is true and that Jesus is God and that He's the only way to salvation and that He's coming again. You know, something really brief. Um, I think that's fine. That tells me that you're not a heretic, so that's good. Um, but much better is a full confession of faith. Sometimes these come in the form of like elder statements of faith, which are really long, and it tells it says all the things that an elder needs to believe to be an elder in a church, a pastor, that is. Um, sometimes they're membership statements of faith. Um, sometimes they split them. And in any case, full confessions of faith talk about things like the conduct that a Christian should exhibit in their life to be considered a faithful member and how the church views uh, the church and government, how the church views taxes, how the church views basically anything of relevance to the Christian life. And so besides maybe like specific foods that you shouldn't eat or should eat, but sometimes they do too. They, they get into the fact that all food is clean or that some foods aren't clean, like if they still have the blood in them, whatever else. Um, in that spirit, we're not the first ones. I'm not the first one to say that the churches should have 
long statements of faith so that they can make sure that everybody's aligned on the Christian fundamentals and past the fundamentals, but into the specifics. Uh, deep, deep growth in Christianity comes with specific growth. It's not just mere Christianity. All that being said, sorry if my big long-winded intro, there are several confessions of faith that we look to as hallmarks um, to model our larger big statements of faith on um, so that we're not working from ground zero. Uh, one of the initial ones in the Reformation was the Augsburg's Confession of Faith in 1530. It's a Lutheran one uh, created by the Lutherans, Martin Luther in particular. Um, I don't really know much about it. I don't know if you guys do. Peter, you, you grew up in the Lutheran church. you know anything about Augsburg's Confession? <laughs> no, I actually don't really okay. know too much. Cool. We lost Sebastian. <clears throat> We'll give him a second. No. You back? Hi there. Hi. Okay. <laughs> I don't know what happened. I'll have to remember to cut it. Uh, <clears throat> do you know anything about Oxford's confession, Sebastian? <laughs> Wow, putting me on the spot. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> from what I recall from church history, uh, no, I don't have any comments at the moment specifically. <laughs> okay, well, that makes three of us. So uh, Augsburg is just one of the first examples that we could find of some Protestant uh, big confession from the Lutherans. But frankly, I don't like the Lutherans, so I don't really care. We're going to go on to the Council of Canons of Dorse. So um, this one's a little more relevant to this podcast, and therefore I know it because... When I was struggling with Arminianism versus Calvinism, the canons of Dort are the source for exactly the debate and happening. Um, for historical background, this happens in the Netherlands. Um, there is a debate between Arminius, a teacher who is combating portions of the Reformation because the Reformation has reached the Netherlands. The Netherlands is Protestant. Um, and he says that everything about the Reformation is right, except that whole part about God being sovereign and um, him choosing his believers, not the other way around. And so the canons of Dort were constructed by the Netherlands church to combat Arminius. Um, so Arminius made five points of what he didn't agree with the Reformation about, and they created five response points in the canons of Dort that uh, combated Arminius and said that the true church should believe. And those are what we now refer to today as tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, uh, I'm already forgetting. We got perseverance of the saints at the end and irresistible grace right irresistible calling uh -huh. yep yeah mm -hmm. got it sorry i'm forgetting my my tulips but anyways that's the canons of dort so important pretty creed like in how short it is um because those things are defined and the actual canons of dort are really long because they go into like big right. soliloquies about fighting arminius um but an important combating of heresy or not heresy but wrong theology nonetheless where we really get into the meat, and maybe you guys have comments on this, or I can just comment, um, are the Westminster Confession of Faith it's from 1647 and the London Baptist Confession of Faith in 1689. These are two clearly old confessions because they're coming from the 1600s, but they are still referenced today in America specifically, and then they are made in, in England. Westminster and London are both in England. And these were cities where the Presbyterians, the Westminster Confession of Faith is from the Presbyterian Church, and the London Baptist Confession of Faith, as it so describes, is from the, the Baptists in London at the time. 
both of these confessions are very robust and they strongly influence not only, of course, the English church, but also the church that ended up here in the United States. So we usually, reformed conservative churches usually base their large statements of faith off these two. Sometimes they don't. Um, sometimes they write their own. I come from a church tradition here where we've written our own um, to each their own, but I do think these are solid confessions of faith, and I would adhere to the London Baptist Confession of Faith personally. Um, there are differences between the two. They're very long, and I encourage you to read them. Um, they're, they're, I encourage you to read them if you want to see their full length um, and, and there are all their details, but they speak to incredibly important things, I think, that typically modern-day churches don't speak to. And one thing I would disagree with my own church about is that my own church's statement of faith specifically and explicitly excludes some of the statements in the London Baptist Confession of Faith about the law of God and how applicable today the law of God is. And so they're worth the read. Um, they speak to basically everything that you could have a question about applicably as a Christian, except for hypermodern things like 5G towers and vaccines and whatever else. Um, but uh, they are robust, and the difference between the two of them really is that the Westminster Confession of Faith has a whole covenantal theology section about defending infant baptism, and the London Baptist Confession doesn't. Um, the London Baptist Confession basically takes the Westminster Confession of Faith and then scrubs that part. So if you want the OG, a lot of Presbyterians are um, uh, whiners and complainers about the London Baptist Confession being a copy of theirs, except taking out their one special thing. So um, I'm fine with the Westminster Confession of Faith, except for the whole thing on covenantal theology, which um, we thoroughly disagree with here in the Found Cause. And we can get into that some other time. But these two confessions today, they're both solid. Um, and I would defend a church that defended those confessions, again, with the exception of the infant baptism thing in Westminster. Any other comments on those confessions? All right, well, let's start wrapping up then. The last thing I would say is that, uh, and I'll just go off the cuff here, I really don't like, and you probably heard me say in this podcast before, the movement that respond from C.S. Lewis's book called Mere Christianity that is fundamentally a uh, ecumenical movement to try to get all the churches to come together into one church. I appreciate the unity uh, of that sentiment, but what you cannot do when you come together as multiple churches or whatever else is compromise on truth, um, good truth, specific and important truth. And while I do think that there are truths that we don't know, like exactly how the end times are happening or exactly what carpet color is appropriate for a church building um, there are truths that we do know that are specific and they're not just jesus is god and then he raised from the dead on the third day and that we need him for the forgiveness of sins there are things like how does the law apply to uh, modern day society or how should christians tithe or whatever else um, that are important and necessary for running christian life for running a church and I think churches need to strongly adhere to those things and not stick to mere Christianity because mere Christianity would say that we should just stick to the fundamentals. And as long as you have the fundamentals, um, you are good and that we, sh we shouldn't push past that. I think that has spawned seeker-sensitive movements that have only hurt people and have led the flock astray. To clarify, and I agree with you, Michael, this is, we should have something similar to a confession just to flush out what God has given to us. Something I tell everybody, because there's some that would say we should just hold on to mere essentials, which is good, which is true for specifically the salvation of an individual. We're not to be quick to jump to conclusions about this, this state that person is before God, but rather the objective we should do 
for having these long confessions, custom customizable or copy paste Westminster, whatever you want. And it is because God has given it a lot, has given us a lot of information in His Word, and clearly He has spent the time and resources through His human agents to put that down. Therefore, we should think it's important. We should talk about these things. We should care. If we love God, we should care about what he has told us. So that's why we should have these discussions on, as you said, the role of the law. Should we follow the law? Should we not follow the law? How do we tithe? Should we tithe? It is important because God spent effort, if you want to call it that, in his word. And But again, that has nothing to do with still holding on when you go on a day-to-day with other Christians are they saved or are they not saved? You should really limit right. what those definitions are. For example, I would not club someone over the head over our differences in the end times or over baptism, either infants or believers. That is an area of disagreement, and it is important, but it is not, I would say, a matter of life or death. So yeah. it's also critical to distinguish between those two. Likewise, I've seen Christians that don't think the law applies to us in, in in the modern the law of Israel applies to us in the modern times. Does that mean they're not saved? I don't think so. I think it is silly, but it is not a matter of salvation or damnation. Right. And I would split it. And the very first episode of this podcast was called "Are You My Brother?" and it was about this exact topic, which was how do we split things between salvation issues, important issues, and non-important issues. And so I would, I would split it into three. I'd say there's salvation issues, which are like the line between Christians and non-Christians. There are important issues that people should be corrected about. You should not live and let live. You should, you should correct them. And then there's issues that you should live and let live, and you can be part of the same church and everything else. Um, I outline those specifically on that first podcast of ours, which is audio only. Um, I do it again. Maybe we'll do a refresh of Are You My Brother at some point, but it's a, it's a thing I still hold to. I think it's super important. I think every church should have something like that um, because... It's useful, important, Sebastian already quoted it, and we've already talked about it a ton in this podcast, but it's really important to have specifics of your confession down, not just the basics. And Theodore, do you have any closing comments? This is your episode. I want to make sure you get your fill. <laughs> Ooh. No, I think I'm good. Okay. We summarized. You've heard some creeds. You've heard some terrible creeds uh, starring the uh, Universal Unitarian Church. Thank you for listening. I've been Michael, the man behind the machine, and to my friend has been... Sebastian, the bookkeeper. And to his virtual side has been... Theodore, under the PC. And we have found our cause in serving the very same Lord Jesus Christ we've been talking about this whole time. Thank you for listening. If you want to see the rest of our episodes, you can go to foundcause.podbean.com and download them all for your listening pleasure. It's audio only, though. If you want to go to... our videos and see our lovely faces you'll have to go to youtube.com and search us there we're getting some mad subscribers and everybody loves our lutheran satire videos you can check that out while you're there um comment leave us a like or a downvote whatever it lets me know what uh what episodes are performing well or which ones are making hindus mad and then you can also go to facebook.com and find us there too although we perform much better on youtube um you can also find us on itunes spotify and we're going to listen to your podcast so until next time we talk about something completely different i guarantee and hopefully sebastian gets better because he's coming down with corona uh that's why we're all virtual today Bye. Bye.